The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Got a lovely day for recording. Actually, a lovely day for being outside in Colorado. But we're recording. I at least have a view of the lovely outside right now. So hopefully later today I'll be able to get out and uh, partake of some of the springtime warmth. Uh, as opposed to the springtime um, three feet of snow, which can also happen at this time of the year in uh, the Front Range of Colorado. But this weekend, we're getting the warm style spring. Um, Jim's going to join me here uh, any moment, and he's the supplier of the questions. Uh, Before he gets on, I'll remind everybody, if you want to send in your own questions for the show, the best way to do that is to email Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email. That's jimhelps.com. Make sure you put in the subject line that is a question for the podcast. And you'll go into the uh, the pool of questions. And we don't get to everyone's question. We try to get to most of them eventually. But uh, hopefully if you don't hear your question on the show, you'll hear a question substantially similar. And um, we can help you out there if it's... Uh, urgent you need to know next week uh, we also have a bit of a backlog we're working on so um, may not get a question answered immediately although he does pluck out a new question of the week that just came in recently just to give people the opportunity to maybe get their question answered right away instead of having to wait uh, in the queue if you will so I wanted to mention that as well so Jim when you're ready go ahead and uh, bring us some uh, questions to go over See, now, I like that. That was a definite cue. I could see it. You were lining it up, and boom, I could hit the puck out of the ball. The, the, I well, could hit the ball out of the puck. I knew I'd get it. There you go. <laughs> because a lot of times, you just throw it to me. See, I usually do that to you. You're not supposed to do it to me. Throw me something right away. <laughs> I, I think as I'm winding down my responses, that it, at least to me, it sounds like, oh, yeah, you know, people can tell we're coming in for a landing here we're we're almost there so um but i guess i can uh maybe i can give you a countdown when i'm almost done i'll say jim get ready i'm i'm almost done and then i'll finish and then you can 
pop in. <laughs> that that might be beneficial. It's okay. okay. People are used to it. I mean, long-time listeners, you know, this is not a professionally produced podcast. If you're a new listener, let me inform you. This is not a professionally produced podcast. We jokingly in the office and to our listeners say this is live recorded, well, not radio anymore, but live recorded podcast. Chris and I try to do this on one take. We generally succeed on that. Occasionally, we will pause uh, while we're recording, mostly if we have to go do something, uh, and then we'll come back and resume. But for the most part, you can pretty much tell, especially when Chris does his criticisms and screws up on things and doesn't say things right, we just go right through that. We, we Yeah, we don't take any of that it. stuff out. Nope. nope Adds to the charm it. of the podcast. Right. But uh, keep that in mind if you're a new listener and, and you're wondering, oh, my God, these guys, they're, they're sounding like they, they just recorded this uh, in an attic in a basement. We literally did record it in an attic in a basement. Actually, <laughs> true. So, <laughs> and I'm recording it right now. Uh, from what I affectionately call my dead animal room, which is my south-facing um, room with the highest ceiling. It's got one of those cathedral-like ceiling pots uh, to the house where the elk antlers can fit. So uh, there's a couple of deer and elk in here keeping me company. But in other words, I'm recording from my home. And are you in the office, Chris, or are you at home right now? I'm in my home office today. Okay, so Chris is at home as well. So anyways, we, we love what we do, and, and hopefully longtime listeners uh, appreciate our efforts on the podcast, but it's not professionally produced. And you do not, please, my God, do not listen to this podcast if you want to master the English language, uh, especially when I'm talking, folks. I mean, cut me some slack, but I, I, English and me don't get along. Uh, pretty much any language in me don't get along. I was going to say, what, what language do you speak? <laughs> none too well, I, I will admit that. I try my hardest, folks. But sometimes my brain is thinking much faster than my mouth can can speak. And then sometimes my mouth has no idea when the hell it's saying because the brain is just firing off things that make no sense. But if you can deal with that, we try to give you some pretty good uh, information. And uh, we go from there. Anyways, let's jump into social security questions. Oh, before we forget, happy Easter. This is Easter weekend, right? So uh, happy yeah. Easter to everyone. Mm -hmm. I think today is Good Friday. And tomorrow is the like Easter Eve. And uh, Sunday is uh, is Easter Sunday. So everybody enjoy. It's supposed to be a warm weekend, relatively speaking, for Colorado stands this time of year in the 70s, which for us is warm this time of year. And uh, I will be hiking and working in my garden. So getting everything ready for spring planting. This, this, this always psychs me in when we start to get this warmer spring weather. So I gleefully go out and start planting everything. And then we'll have a cold snap and it'll be below zero again. And it just, ugh. so I've learned now I still cover, even with this heat, Chris, I will cover everything in greenhouse plastic. Because you know, and I know till about May 15th, we yep. can get cold and snow at any yep. time. Mother's Day. That's the general rule. The big, the big planting weekend here on the Front Range of Colorado is Mother's Day weekend because I don't, I don't do it. Don't I hear that all the time? Mm -hmm. I go to the fifteenth of May. Well, Mother's Day weekend can some no Mother's Day can, can sometimes be early. Be earlier. It's, it's it's right around there though. But you can stick well, to your fifteenth. You don't have to. I honor, do. You don't I have do. to honor your mother at all. <laughs> I do love to garden, folks. As part of the reason. I share with everybody on this show uh, my 
gosh, I've been honest with everyone about my health, my issues, how it impacts my retirement planning. And I have no problem doing that. I want people to be able to learn. And I've shared to everyone that the older Jim wants to continue to garden. I'm talking the 70 and 80 year old Jim. And really, it's why I will pack up roots in Colorado and and move most likely to the Ohio River Valley. Uh, It's for no other reason except 70 and 80 year old Jim is going to want a garden without having a deal with everything we have to deal with in Colorado. Although I've been watching the weather out there. They get like tornadoes and and massive storms. I didn't realize that. Uh, It's also very scary, Mm -hmm. but we'll see. Anyways, we have a easy for me to read short social security question today and a much longer question for me to read social security question today. We will do both. Which would you like first? Mm, I'm fine either way. How about if we cover them in whatever order they came in to us? Try to be ultimately fair. Ultimately fair. We have one that came in November 8th of 2022. And the other one came in January 13th, 2023. So the November one is first. Okay. That's the short one. And they are from the good state of... They didn't give the state. This is before we started playing the trick quiz. Trick quick. See? There we go. (laughs) English language. Trick Chris with a... Uh, trivia question of your state type thing. So I have not only no state, I don't have a damn trivia question either. But it begins, my wife is 62 and receives $100 in Social Security. So a very tiny benefit, mm-hmm. obviously. I am 68. If I start my Social Security in November of 22, now remember, folks, this came in. Uh, in November of 22. If I start Social Security in November of 22, I will receive $3,680. Let's say I die January 1st of 2023. I hope he didn't, because number one, he's not going to hear his answer. And number two, that's pretty sad. But uh, hopefully, listener, you are still here with us. If I die January 1st of 2023... What will my wife's spousal benefit be based on? If I die a year later or even longer than that, will this affect the amount she receives? If so, how? What other information would be needed to help you figure this out? I don't think you need any more information. You can tell him how to do it. um, So what was the year of birth for his wife? Uh, nine twenty one fifty seven. Okay, and then he was in what year? Oh, he has your birthday. Oh wow! April first, right. April first, but nineteen fifty four. Mm-hmm. And nice. you were born what? Sixty eight. Sixty seven. Sixty seven. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd uh, yeah. So there you go. Happy birthday! Just uh, six days ago or so. <laughs> oh, and. Uh, I can answer it with what he provided. May not be able to give him um, like down to the dollar, but I can describe how it's going to work, and I think it will answer his question just fine. So she, um, born in 1957, so her full retirement age 
is 66 and six months. Okay. Um, those born before 1955, like he was born in 1954, his full retirement age is just straight up 66 years. What he's asking, he's asking about a spousal benefit, but he's describing what happens when he dies. That's actually a survivor benefit. Happens to go to your spouse, but spousal benefits are those uh, paid while you're still alive, which if her benefit is only $100, she should get a spousal benefit as soon as you claim if she chooses to sign up for it. And when I say that, the reason why she may not choose to do that she doesn't reach her full retirement age until about a year from when we're recording this. So 19, I'm sorry, 2024. She was born in September of 57. So six, uh, 66 and six months would put her about March of 2024. If she were to claim any benefit, your survivor benefit, her own benefit, the spousal benefit, there is a reduction factor that's applied that would reduce her benefit a little bit if she immediately uh, claimed those benefits when they become available. She's experienced that so far because you mentioned that she was um, 62. Those numbers don't line up, Um, do they? If she was born in 1957... Do you want me to read? Let me me get the email. She was 62 in 2019. So I'm not sure I, either her date of birth is wrong in his description or her age quote is wrong. Either way, I can answer the question, let, but there's let, something let out of back. whack there. Chris, let me just go back and check. Okay. He says, my wife is 62, and I didn't say the date of birth at first because I skipped over it, but he put in parentheses, 9-21-57. Yeah. So is that someone who would be 62 on November of 2022? No. Okay, then his math is wrong turned, there. So that person would be 62 in 2019. So it would be 65. Now, again, the error could be on the date he quoted for her birth or the age he quoted, but one of those is wrong because <laughs> those don't right, line right. up. But either way, I agree. either way, I can describe what happens and... The amount of the adjustment will will vary depending on what his, her reality happens to be, but uh, yeah, when I look at that, when I look at that year, I'm like, no, yeah, people in 1957 aren't only 62 now. Some of them might like to be that, but that's not how it's working with the math. Um, so anyway, once he claims, he's going to open the door to a potential spousal benefit. If she were to claim that spousal benefit. Uh, that would that would raise her benefit from the hundred she's collecting now on her own record to that spousal benefit, and if she does that prior to her reaching her full retirement age, which if she's in fact born in 1957 would be March of 2024, then if she claims it before that, there's going to be a reduction to that. Uh, benefit. She's she already was experiencing a reduction to her own benefit to get her to the hundred dollars that he quoted before, but she'd immediately be eligible to claim a spousal offset, and would get the largest spousal offset if she waited until March of 2024. Even if he claimed before that and opened the door, she's not forced to walk through that door, but he by claiming will open the door to a spousal benefit for her. 
But that's not his question. He's, he mentioned spousal, but he was asking really about survivor benefits. What happens if I die? What is she going to get? Well, then when one of a couple, a married couple dies, the uh, surviving spouse is eligible to effectively step into their shoes and collect whatever benefit they were collecting when they died. If they haven't claimed, it would be whatever benefit they would have collected if they claimed the night before they died. They can collect 100% of that if and only if they've reached their own full retirement age. Now, she's in that range where the full retirement age for her own benefits and spousal benefits is different than the full retirement age for survivor benefits. So her full retirement age for survivor benefits is only 66 in two months. So if she were to wait till November-ish of 2023, even if he died in January of 2023... She could claim it immediately. She'd be eligible to do it, but she'd be taking a reduction, a few percentage points of a reduction, if she wanted to make sure she was getting the biggest survivor benefit she could muster throughout the rest of her life. She would want to wait until she reached her full retirement age before claiming it. Uh, she could continue claiming her own along that way. It doesn't shut everything off. She could keep getting her $100. Um, and then in November, claim the survivor benefit. So the, the basics is whatever you earned for yourself, in his case, he mentions $3,680, um, that has some delayed retirement credits in it, by the way, because uh, him being born in 1954, his full retirement age was 66. So if he waited to 68 and eight months to claim, he's been earning some delayed retirement credits. So his 3680 was bumped up a little bit and she will enjoy or get to retain those delayed retirement credits um, if he were to die. That's a very misunderstood rule. A lot of people uh, aren't aware of that. And, and even if he hadn't claimed any delayed retirement credits he'd earned up to the day he died uh, would be applied to the benefit before she claimed it as a survivor. The only thing she can do to reduce that benefit is to claim it before her own full retirement age. But she's fairly close. It's going to be a November of, uh, assuming the 1957 uh, year is correct, she um, will reach her full retirement age in about November of 2023. What she cannot do is continue to delay claiming it and increase that survivor benefit with additional delayed retirement credits. The only person who can generate delayed retirement credits to benefit the payment is the person who earned it, the number holder who generated the benefit in the first place. Auxiliary beneficiaries, spouses, children, dependent parents, people like that that might claim on your record cannot embellish those delayed retirement credits through additional delay. The only thing I was mentioning with her delaying from claiming from January to November is if she wanted to make sure the survivor benefit that she got was as big as possible. Because if she claimed earlier than that full retirement age, she'd, in, she'd be, uh, you know, have a reduced benefit by a small amount. So she'd have to make the decision to, on which way to go there. So, um, you know, I think that's general enough adv advice about kind of how it works. Uh, that if the 1957 is wrong, I think he, you still kind of get it um, from this. The, the, the basic answer 
she can get the 3680. She just would have to wait to her full retirement age, whenever that might be, to claim it, uh, to get that amount. If she claimed it before, be a little bit reduced. That's pretty much the story. Perfect. I like it. The next one then by default is a long question. Um, I will try to uh, read it a little more quickly. He did give the state. Mm -hmm. This is before they started providing hints. And I have, oh, if you get this wrong. Mm. uh, I hate when you say that. It puts a lot of pressure (laughs) on me. I will personally hold the educational uh, system of Wyoming responsible. This state was named after a former president. It's is already taken one? much too long. Well, I, I, I'm thinking of one. I'm just making sure there's not more than one. Is there? I'm not giving you any hints. It's state was named more than after one, a former right? There's president. just one that was named after a former president. Isn't that? I'm I think not. That's true. Give, so I'm gonna have to say. Give I'm gonna have to say Washington. There you go. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, so, good. <laughs> that was an easy one. That yeah, was an easy there's one. There's no other state that's named directly after a president that I know I of. don't think so. No, no, not that I, I know of. And but. I'm just trusting you that that was, in fact, where the word, the name Washington came from. I would assume they named it after. Well, you said it Mr. so confidently. Washington. It's like you knew. I, I think you're probably right, but there's other folks in the world named Washington other than George. It could have been named after Freddie Boom Boom Washington mm-hmm. from Welcome Back, Cartier. Or Denzel Washington. Or Denzel Washington, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, I'll concede that, except the states were named long before Freddie Boom Boom Washington was created and Denzel Washington hit the big screen. So I'm okay. going to go with George. It was okay. named after George. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I'll try to... Well, I'm just going to read the, 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 the email. I might read it a little quick because it's a little long. I had to read this damn thing twice, Chris. So if you need further clarification, please let me know. Okay. My wife and I both claimed Social Security at the same time after we reached our full requirement age. My wife claimed spousal benefits since they were more than her benefits. Both my wife and my disabled son were claiming benefits on my record. Then three months later, where Social Security initially approved and paid my wife's spousal benefit, they came back and said, my wife wasn't eligible for spousal benefits and she had to pay them back the difference. And going forward, her future benefit would be reduced by $330 to match her own benefit amount. I know there is a family maximum benefit, but depending but depending how it is calculated, it would affect the spousal benefit. If my wife uses her social security first in the calculation of the family maximum, then the incremental spousal benefit of $330 along with my son's 50% benefit would still be below the family maximum. Let me pause there. Do you understand what he said there? Do you need me to repeat that? No, I think I I I I, I can kind of detect where this is going, but 
Okay. I'm going to guess there are other listeners like me going, huh? So, folks, Chris will put this in English. I'm just reading the email verbatim. Chris is a social security expert, not me. In the family maximum, he continues, in the family maximum calculation, if you include the full 50% spousal benefit amount based on my record, it would be greater than the family maximum. I filed an appeal with Social Security with the actual numbers just using only the incremental 330 spousal benefit calculation. I apologize, folks. I don't know what this man is saying. So Social Security's only reply to my letter. This is the, the gist of it. Social Security replied to my letter saying they cannot pay spousal benefits since they since they would be less than her social security amount, her her social security amount. We called multiple times and filed two appeals asking for an explanation on how they calculated that, and we never got an answer. Can I, excuse me, where in the POM manual can I find out how the spousal benefit is calculated within the family maximum calculation. I enjoy your podcast, which I am trying to catch up on, and I wish I discovered it before I retired. Thank you for looking into this. He gave his full name, but I'm going to call him George from Washington. George Washington? Oh, wow. That, that, now, that's cute. Come on. George Washington. Oh, I just... <laughs> okay. You got to admit, right, that's okay. cute. Anyways, is there anything you need me to repeat on that? Because it is a complicated question. The way he wanders through it, it I can understand, but I'll decipher it for people because I caught on exactly what he's asking as, as you read through there. So let me give a little backstory or a little background on this thing called the family maximum. Um. Most people know that when you claim your own benefit, you unlock the door for potential auxiliary benefits. The most common one is a spousal benefit. and uh, But there's also a benefit that's available for uh, children uh, of the number holder, of the person who claimed. Uh, though That's available up until they're 18 or 19 if they're still in high school. Or even adult children, if they were disabled before turning the age of 22, I think is the, is the age. And um, so you could have an, a fully adult child of any age if they were permanently disabled prior to 22 years old. Um, and each of those independently, the spouse and the child, and no matter how many children you have, each of them is at first eligible for 50% of your full retirement age benefit. So you can imagine if you claimed and then you had, well, you can't have six spouses legally, but you could have six kids, right? After you claimed and a spouse, that's seven people claiming half. That would be three and a half times your own benefit. So you'd be collecting four and a half times what they were really, you know, you know, your, your benefit would be multiplied four and a half times effectively. So um, they limit that. They don't allow that. That's essentially where the family maximum comes in. The family maximum is a formula that has its own, what we call bend points in it. And I don't have them memorized. They change every single year. But 
basically what happens is through that formula, the family maximum when you claim a retirement benefit is going to be equal to somewhere between 150% and 182% of your benefit, which means if you have a son and a spouse both trying to claim without this limitation, 50% plus 50% in my book is 100%. Well, you can only, and then you're 100% of your own, that's 200% you can only get between 150 and 182. So there has to be a cut. They don't cut yours. What they do figure out is to keep you within your family maximum, how much do they need to cut all of the auxiliary beneficiaries? So they're going to reduce uh, both your spouse's benefit and your son's benefit in this case to get you below whatever your family maximum is. And I don't have, he didn't give us numbers, so I can't even calculate it if I had the, the formula in front of me. But that'll, that's what's going on with this limitation. His question was, well, let me, let me give one other piece of background which will help answer this. When a spouse gets a spousal benefit, if they had their own retirement benefit available, the system first looks and sees, will the spousal benefit, that 50%, um, be bigger than the spouse's own benefit? If it's not, they don't pay you any spousal, you get your own benefit because that's bigger. If the spousal benefit is bigger, they will then uh, pay you that spousal benefit as it was calculated, but it is technically coming in the form of and this is really more of an accounting issue than anything, where the money comes from, they're going to pay you your own benefit and then pay you what's called a spousal offset. And that's what he's talking about in here. He calls it an incremental $330 of spousal benefit. That's technically called the spousal offset. So his wife has a benefit of some amount where the spousal benefit is $330 more than that. So they effectively then pay her her own and then pay the spousal offset. That's the 330 he keeps talking about. They took that away. They said she doesn't deserve that, or she did not deserve. She doesn't, she's not eligible for that. Well, let me explain. All starts with that family maximum. That family maximum, when they're determining it, the full spousal benefit is considered in this family maximum. They're not looking at just the spousal offset. The reason for that is everyone out there would have a different spousal offset and you'd give advantage to people that happen to be married to someone who generated their own benefit um, versus someone who was married to someone who didn't create their own benefit. So this is actually fair. This is actually correct the way they do this. They uh, figure out the spousal benefit um, and, and count it towards the family maximum. In his case, there is a reduction of some amount that reduction caused the spousal benefit that she would otherwise be eligible for to drop below her own benefit. So there is no spousal offset to pay. They essentially say, nope, you're the spousal that you qualify for because it's being reduced and limited by the family maximum formula is smaller than your own benefit. And so you collect your own. Now, the little bit of silver lining here, the good news is his son is getting more benefit than he otherwise would because since she's no longer claiming a spousal, 
he will get his full 50%, where before he was getting a cut, just like if he and the, his spouse, the son and the spouse, both were getting a cut because they were too big to fit into the family maximum, the one thing that's true is the a single child or a single spouse alone claiming will always fit within the family maximum. So they're going to get their full amount. So she lost 330 in his eyes, but there was more money given to the son. So they might've ended up in, you know, uh, I think they're ending up in a place better than what he thinks, but whether it's better or not, that's the rules. So that's why this all rolled out and you can appeal as much as you want. And you just unfortunately didn't get someone who on the phone that could just explain this to you. Um, It is quite confusing. uh, I understand. I can't, he asked where in the palms Uh, it is in there how the family maximum is applied. I don't have that section of the palms memorized to give you where it is. If you want further clarification, you can always reach out to me and I'll find in the palms where it is. But um, you could also just go search the palms for family maximum and they'll walk you uh, through it. But that's where he's running into problems here. That's, That's what's happening is that family maximum reduces when both a spouse and a child are claiming and that pushes the spousal benefit below hers, so she's not owed a spousal benefit. She's owed her own benefit because it's bigger. That relieves pressure on his family maximum calculation because now there's just one beneficiary, one auxiliary claiming to the son, and they can get the full 50%. So that's the silver lining that he didn't bring up in here, and maybe he didn't notice that in those calculations, that the son is actually a little better off. Um, with his, with, I'm impressed you with made heads or tails out of that. Yeah, because I read it twice, and even when mm-hmm. I was reading it again to you, it's just the way he worded some of the things were confusing me. But I don't have your knowledge on Social Security, so yeah, I speak. Uh, you you do you um, have? I speak uh, Social Security as a second language. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't even speak English as a first language, so cut me cut me some slack there. But so no, I'm, I think you. I'm pretty you confident that's what he was talking about in there. Okay. Well, hopefully that helped that listener and all listeners who are going to be subject to the family maximum. Social Security is confusing, and that's why we always lead with Social Security questions, folks. We used to lead with one. Lately, for a very long time, we've been leading with two. I can't go more than two because then we won't get to any other style questions, which brings us to the third question. But before we get to the third question, we have a clarification from last week that someone wanted to provide to us. Not a mistake, which is refreshing. Just a clarification. You remember the Mitten State? Oh, yeah, Michigan. Yeah, so he's going to... This is interesting. So he wrote to us, Hello, Jim and Chris. So for those who don't know, I think that was part of a a, uh, question, one of the the trivia bits that Chris had a guest on Michigan. He said, I enjoy your podcast for a number of years. I retired in 2019 straight into the face of a pandemic and a market downturn. Talk about sequence of return (laughs) risk. Exactly. He said, I usually, I hope he always, but he said, I usually enjoy your clues about where the listeners are writing from. But I must help answer your question from episode 2313. Michigan is, of course, known as the Great Lake State due to it being surrounded on three sides by different Great Lakes. I didn't realize Michigan Mm -hmm. was surrounded on three sides by Great Lakes, but I went and looked on a map and he is right. 
Minnesota is known as the land of 10,000 lakes, but none of them are Great Lakes. Well, none of those lakes they're referring to, but Minnesota absolutely does touch Lake Superior. That's why I guess Minnesota. Well, he says Minnesota is... uh, Wait, wait, wait. Let me read what he said. He says, Minnesota is known as the land of 10,000 lakes. None of them, by the way, are Great Lakes. So wouldn't you count if it touches a Great Lake? Uh, I, I do, don't. but I, I don't. That's not what they're referring to with the ten thousand. Uh, oh, Superior is 10, out of the ten thousand lakes, they're not counting the Great Lake. Okay. No, that's that a, that's like an ocean basically, and they have a whole bunch of little ones inside the state that make. So up they're 10, counting 000. the little ones. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so far, so good. Yeah. He goes on. As for the moniker High Five State, this may be obscure, but it fits with the visual geography of our quote-unquote mitten state of Michigan. In fact, when people ask where you live in Michigan, we will hold up our hand and point to where we live in the mitten. Hmm. Thus, the thus the high five state is sitting right there on the map, ready to give everyone a high five. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you, listener, for clarifying. He is from Michigan, gives his real name. We'll call him George. But uh, thanks for that clarification. I never knew that. And I, Deb, you know, the woman I dated and then uh, officed with us and her and her husband. I mean, I dated her listeners long before she got married. But uh, she's from Michigan. She was a, a Uper or a Uper. Uh, I think they call it Uper. She was from the Upper Peninsula. and uh, But mm. she never told me about the mitten thing. Well, so. that part doesn't look like a mitten. Well, she's there's from like Michigan. There's like the mitten, and then there's the Upper Peninsula, and the Upper Peninsula looks like um, not a mitten. The main <laughs> part looks like I totally see it. I'm looking at it right now, um, but the upper part, I'm not sure what it looks like. A uh, rabbit that had jumped over the mitten is kind of what it looks like. Well, we'll skip that. All right, okay. let's get into a different question. This is the new question of the week. Um. I'm going to try to get two more questions answered. So let's rush through. Well, I don't want to necessarily rush through it, but um, this is a two-part question. Uh, Neither one of them are terribly long, but he gives a hint first. Hi, Jim and Chris. Here's the hint. I am from the state of independence. Now, I don't know. He gives the, the answer, obviously, which I won't read until you guess. But I didn't know what he meant by state of independence when when he uh, wrote it or when I read his email rather so it could he doesn't clarify if he means the state was involved in our independence at uh, you know in the 1700s when we were breaking free from England or if he means the residents of of the state are independent people I have no idea hmm. But that was the two ways I took it. Mm-hmm. I will give you, do you want a hint? I sure take it. I have a guess, something that came to mind, but. It is one of the 13 original colonies. So I'm thinking that's what he meant and not that people in Pennsylvania are independent thinkers. I think he meant it's one of the original 13 Well, well you just colonies. stated my guess. So Pennsylvania. I, you're right. Yeah, Pennsylvania. You said the people of Pennsylvania. <laughs> Did I? Yeah. 
Yeah. You but, serious? But that, seriously, that was my guess. Because Independence, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, there was a lot of the... When, when... I... Right before I said it, before I interrupted you, you said the people of whatever. Pennsylvania being independent or whatever, so... But that I'm seriously that's because oh. I think Liberty Bell's there, you know, and there was there was a lot of political, sh- um, you know, work uh, writings and things that were done out of Pennsylvania. So, yeah. Well, it was Pennsylvania, and Excellent. sorry if I did say Pennsylvania when I was opining right there. I had no clue. Um, but yes, it's Pennsylvania. People in Pennsylvania, I guess, are known as the state of independence. All right, here's his first question: Chris and you. Have been have discussed in the past using a second to die life insurance policy owned by a trust so that the life insurance proceeds are inherited tax free. I'm going to get to what he just wrote there in a second. I want to finish the whole question. As an alternative to that, what would you think about gifting funds to your adult children? And have them pay the life insurance premiums on the lives of my spouse and I. Wouldn't the life insurance proceeds be inherited tax-free that way by the adult children? Of course, there are risks. The children might not pay the premium with the money we gift. And there are other risks, I'm sure. But what about our general concept? So let's pause there. Chris and I have talked in the past on this podcast about using a second-to-die guaranteed universal life insurance policy to offer a guaranteed inheritance to children. We have also talked about using ILITs. That's what he's referencing, irrevocable life insurance trusts. Mm-hmm. But he wrote, he implied with his first question, He said that we have talked about using a life insurance policy owned by a trust so the life insurance proceeds are inherited tax-free. All life insurance proceeds, whether the life insurance policy was owned by a trust or a human, under current laws, change in the future, but under current laws, are inherited income tax-free. So you do not need a trust for your children to get an income tax-free inheritance from a life insurance policy, Mm -hmm. whether it's on two lives, otherwise known as a second-to-die policy, or one life, otherwise known as a traditional life insurance policy. We recommend two lives when people are looking to maximize an inheritance to their children because it doesn't pay until the second spouse dies, hence the moniker second to die. But the reason we favor it, you can get incredibly more life insurance dollar for dollar in one policy that's insuring two lives than in each spouse having separate policies, dollar for dollar, because two lives are cheaper to insure than one life. And it's, it only makes sense, folks. One life, the insurance company worries about what I call the bus theory. The minute you buy the policy, you walk out the door and boom, you get hit by a bus and you're dead. The chances of two people dying quite unexpectedly are much slimmer. And that's reflected in the pricing of second to die policies. Okay. The taxes that we talk about, though, Chris, when we might recommend people consider an islet 
is people who are subject to estate taxes. Right. Now, right now, with the federal estate tax exemption being so high, few people, there are definitely people, but they're the one percenters, I guess, whatever you want to call them, who have a combined estate greater than, I don't even know what it is anymore, Chris. Uh, you can look like it up, but it's... 12-something. So, okay. So each spouse has an exemption of 12 million. Let's just round it to 12 million. Google what this estate tax exemption is. It changes every year. Yeah. So uh, you're looking at about 24 Almost million. Almost 13 million. It's 12, 9, okay. 20 now. Let's just call it 13 million. Yeah. You're looking at $26 million, any estate valued um, from spouses because they can uh, share their exemption amount. Um, there's, there's rules around sharing it. We don't want to get into that on this, this, this answer. But $26 million is quite big, and most people are not subject to federal estate taxes. So islets have fallen out of favor, mm -hmm. except for people who live in states with their own estate tax, mm -hmm. like Washington, Massachusetts, and a few others. They impose an estate tax on their residents at much, much, much lower exemption amounts. Massachusetts is about a million, I believe. So people in those states may not worry about federal estate taxes, but they do worry about state estate taxes. Because even though, especially on a second-to-die GUL that we favor, they have very, very, very little cash value. The policies are designed to give maximum, maximum, maximum leverage on a death benefit. You want cash value if you want to be able to borrow from the policy or withdraw from the policy or use the cash value as an asset. Concepts that are common in, in life insurance planning, but concepts that we don't really favor for a variety of reasons. We feel when you buy life insurance, you should maximize it for the most life insurance. And if you need cash value, there might be better ways of, of developing that. But that's just our opinion. It's open for debate, not on this show. So we try to get as much death benefit as possible in a second-to-die policy. But whoever owns the policy, even though that money is not there, there's no cash value in most GULs. There will be for a little time period, but not long and not much, relatively speaking. But when that person dies, let's just say it was a $3 million GUL, the $3 million will be included in their estate. And that would be subject to estate taxes. So by structuring it through an irrevocable life insurance trust, which is a type of grantor trust, the value of that $3 million is not included in the estate of the people who died. It's not subject to estate taxes at all. And because under current laws, it's also exempt from income taxes, beneficiaries, especially for people who live in states with estate taxes, can benefit uh, on an after-tax adjusted basis greatly. So I wanted to clear that up in his first question. Mm -hmm. So his second question is, what do you think of just gifting to a child and letting them pay the premiums? Here's the issue, listener. You don't tell me what state you live in and what is your goal of buying the life insurance. If your goal is to avoid estate taxes, then no, someone has to own that policy 
And the value of that policy will be in their estate when they die. If you have your children own the policy and you're going to gift them the proceeds to, excuse me, money to pay the annual premiums. Who did I say owns the policy? He owns the policy. The the kids. Okay. Mm -hmm. If the kids own the policy and you are gifting the premiums, you have no say, as you rightly point out, if the kids are going to pay those premiums or not. They own the policy. It's their policy. They can do what they want. If you own the policy to retain ownership, so especially if you have multiple children and you have one child owning it, nothing stops that child from changing the beneficiaries to himself or herself, disinheriting the other children or naming his wife or her husband if you don't particularly like them, but naming them as beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. The owner has complete control to do all that. You're going to want to maintain that control. So you would own the policy in your situation, I would assume. So why gift the money to the children to, quote unquote, pay the premiums? It kind of defeats the purpose. You can just pay the premiums yourself. Again, look at the ownership structure in the eyes through a a state, state estate tax. If you are in a state that is not subject to state estate tax, there's no tax benefit at all because it's income tax free already. And I would assume your your uh, estate is less than $28 million, so there's no federal estate tax. And you live in a state with no state estate tax. Just own the policy yourself. Chris and I concede. You don't need a trust there. You can still create a trust to be beneficial of the life insurance policy to control the, the, the payments to your children, if that's a choice, but that's totally different. Right. You still own the policy. You just named a trust as beneficiary. You use an islet to avoid a state tax. All right, enough on that one. Do you think well, I Well, let me okay? let me say one last thing because there is another thing to consider when you so technically you could have the child own the policy, but then it opens up the door to all those, you know, uh, variables of will they pay the premiums, keep it up to date? Will they disinherit their siblings? Will they, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, So if you're going to want to, you know, but, but that does avoid the estate tax when these parents die because it's owned by the, the kids and they'll get the proceeds at that time, and then there'll be money in their possession. And that money, if it's still around when they die, could be part of an estate. But the life insurance payout isn't in the estate. But we don't really like that that much because of that control issue. So um, if you do end up doing an islet, one advantage to that is that it doesn't then use up the annual gift tax exclusion that you'd be using as you were gifting your kids this money to make these premium payments. By having the trust, that creates another person, effectively in the eyes of the law, that you can gift in 2023 $17,000 a year to without any uh, hit to any gift or estate tax limits. So um, you're kind of, you'd, you'd be eating up the annual exclusion for your kids by using it to make these premium gifts uh, rather than directing them let to the trust. Me, so one other little l- issue. Let me chime in there because my little um, 
chipmunk is spinning now in my head. <laughs> okay. When you have an islet, it's based on the beneficiaries of that islet. You are technically gifting money into the trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries. That's why the beneficiaries get a crummy letter, giving them 30 days to remove that gift made into the trust. By giving the beneficiaries the ability to remove the money that you just put into the islet, that makes it a completed gift because you have theoretically given up control. The children have access to the money. Under the Crummy provision, which came out years ago, decades ago, from a gentleman whose last name is Crummy, who the attorneys came up with this idea, they said, hey, we're making a gift to an islet for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So you could theoretically have four, let's say two to make this easy, two beneficiaries of an islet, and you could theoretically gift $34,000 to that trust as and double it, 68 if it's a husband and wife, each gifting 17000 to each beneficiary. Just do the math and follow along, folks. But it's based on the beneficiary, Chris, not the trust. Yeah, as, you're right. As, now that you say that, I, I shouldn't have chimed in because you're right. I forgot that gifts to a trust directly don't qualify no, for the annual exclusion. So they use the annual exclusion of the beneficiaries to the get beneficiaries, it to go. Correct. So, so I'm sorry correct. I spoke up. You are cor- absolutely correct. I, I, nope. No problem. We haven't talked That's about this for here. so long that hadn't uh, clicked uh, in in my mind. So thanks for picking up on that because that is that is absolutely true. No, nope. this is one reason, folks. I mean, to di- diverge here a little, uh, we as a firm plan as a team because no one person can possibly know everything, and we all make mistakes. Even if we know something, I'm living proof of that. Lately, uh, I had been making some errors in things I say, not because I didn't know it. I just wasn't thinking straight. And it's one reason as a firm, we plan as a team. I know there's a belief out there by many uh, pundits, especially uh, in a lot of publications that, oh, no, no, no. When you hire a financial planner, you want to know who it is. And you want that same person all the time to be your financial planner. I don't subscribe to that belief at all. You want a firm that uses a team. Now that said, Please, if you are a solo practitioner, do not write me angry emails. There are many fine solo practitioners who, even though you'll be dealing with just them, they have a team behind them, so to speak, that they can often reference. That's what I used to do before I started hiring Chris and other planners and and advisors to work with me. Uh, I would counsel with other solo practitioners uh, and say, hey, I got a client. This is what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? Am I missing anything? So we're not throwing solo practitioners under the bus. But when you hire a planning firm, ask them who's going to be making the majority of my decisions. Chris knew what he just clarified himself on. He just went picking up on it at the time. And me, it took my little uh, chipmunk to start spitting. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, crummy provision. No, 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 no. And literally what you just saw is what we do every week when we plan as a team. So I just wanted to throw that out there. We all have our specialties at our firm, and most planners do. Chris, obviously, is Social Security. Me, it's the English language. And besides that, it would be IRAs. But we all have specialties, and we have tax uh, specialists on. And anyways, I just wanted to throw that out there. Let's mm-hmm. get to the next part. I think we covered that okay yeah. for, for him to understand. Mm-hmm. He then goes, he says, you often discuss what you call the 210 rule for minimizing taxes. 
I'm going to pause there. The 210 rule is for optimizing tax planning, Mm -hmm. not necessarily minimizing taxes. I'll read the question, then I'll explain what he he covers what 210 is. But he says, you often, excuse me, you discuss the 210 rule for minimizing taxes. I think it indicates, are you planning for two people or one person or no people? And it must be chosen. Sometimes, wouldn't it just make sense to look at the two and the one and the zero together and plan in the aggregate for all involved? Between myself, my spouse, and my three adult children, I want to minimize taxes for all of us. And then he, I'm trying to read what he said. And then he said, for all of us, and I will factor in a guesstimate of what my children's future earning powers will be. You are correct, listener. That is a, a wonderful goal to reduce for all. But the 210 number is the prioritization. Someone has to pay taxes. It's either going to be both of you as a couple on a joint tax return, one of you as a widow or a widower on a single tax return, or your children, as you rightly point out, on their own individual tax returns, and you're trying to account to their future earnings potential because you know they will have to pay taxes on money you leave them, especially inside an IRA or a 401k, at their tax brackets. If you have one child in the highest bracket and another child in the lowest bracket, uh, it's a, a I don't want to say unfairness, they might inherit the same amount of money, but one will end up with more after-tax money than the other. What we do and what I did with creating the 210 concept is to say to people, just tell us who to prioritize. Because look at it this way, listener. If you prioritize the zero ahead of the two, that tells us we're not going to necessarily look at trying to keep a couple within a certain tax bracket. We're not going to overly pay attention to Irma. The couple is willing to pay more in taxes to lower their children's taxes. What if all three of your children are in the highest bracket and you and your wife are in the middlest bracket? Maybe not the 12, which is current, the, which is going to be 15, but maybe you're in that next bracket, which is what? 20, 22 will be 25. 22, mm-hmm. And it's going to go to 25. So maybe you're in the 22 slash 25 and your children are in the 39. We to us, would say to you, okay, you want to optimize for the zero, it makes sense for you two to voluntarily move up from the 22 slash 25 to the next bracket or even the next bracket above that because your children are going to be in the 39.6 or Lord only knows what the brackets will be in the future when they inherit it. Maybe there'll be a 50% bracket in the future. I'm just making that up, but one never knows. We use the 210 number to tell us how to prioritize the tax planning. Unfortunately, it's very rare to find scenarios where we can lower the taxes for the couple, lower the taxes for the widow, widower, and lower the taxes for the child. Mm -hmm. Someone's got to pay the taxes. We just want to know who to prioritize. Mm -hmm. If someone prioritizes the two, We're not going to convert into a higher bracket. We're trying to lower it for the two. We're not going to convert into an Irma bracket. 
We're trying to keep taxes lower for the two. But oftentimes when a couple see a plan that we do, and I'm sure that other advisors would, would review with, I don't want to speak for other advisors, and they start looking at a widow-widower scenario, in many cases, not all, but many, the surviving spouse, especially in the case I shared before, where you are of similar ages and have most of your money in always taxable IRAs, the surviving spouse is going to be nailed with the widow-widower tax penalty, and couples will decide, oh my goodness, no, let's prioritize the one, push our taxes up now a little as a couple, because if we don't, whoever is the widower or widower is going to be paying two or three tax brackets more than what we are. So we will raise the taxes for the two in an effort to lower the taxes for one. Both are still going to pay taxes, but they have given us permission to prioritize the one when someone will put it one, two, zero in my hypothetical situation. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing goes for zero. We have had people who have very successful children. I told you, Chris, we sadly, our oldest client passed away at 98 last year. Her son was in a significantly higher tax bracket than her. This woman loathed paying taxes, but she knew she was passing away. She was still of sound mind. And the proposal was made to have her do a complete conversion of her IRA. She prioritized the zero over her final tax return, which she jokingly said, I won't be here to sign it anyways. So, and if she was, she would, that would have killed her. If, if she hadn't passed away, she would have passed away when she saw the, yeah. <laughs> right. She hated paying taxes, but it was significantly less than what her um, son would have paid. So that's where you just prioritize. And then we or whoever's helping you do your taxes can plan around it. Did I explain that okay or not? I think so. And in practice, just to give people an idea of what we see, it's uh, very low probability that there's one strategy that minimizes for all three, unless it's a um, very modest wealth. So you're not, nobody's ever penetrating up into any tax brackets beyond, say, the 15 bracket, which is now 12. Then obviously the you know one approach is going to be, you know, the best approach for all three, possibly. But that doesn't happen that much. If the more money you've accumulated in these always taxable accounts, then you've got a, you're dealing with much um, um, uglier looking tax brackets, particularly when you transition from a couple to a single survivor, which generally happens unless you die simultaneously, that's going to happen to everybody. So um, the best usually that you can find is um, there are strategies a lot of times identified that two of the three are benefited, but the, you know it's not just you know one and the other two lose, if you will. But you can oftentimes find something a a good strategy that that works well for two of those. You know the two and the one, or the one and the zero, or what have you. And and uh, it's you know looks like a bit of a sacrifice for that third one that's out there. But that's where the prioritization comes in. If we can prioritize and we can knock off those top two for you, um, that's usually indi- you know indicating a pretty attractive scenario. So, um, yeah, but it's and and the other thing is you mentioned assuming what his children are going to earn in the future. 
one troublesome thing for doing all this, of course, are the assumptions that you're using. Assumptions for future tax brackets, assumptions for how long you're both going to be alive in order to um, take advantage of the married filing joint brackets versus a single bracket. Um, you know, estate tax issues because, you know, actually doing kind of proactive conversions reduces your overall estate at the end. Um, they haven't clued into the fact that a tax-free estate is more valuable than a taxable estate when it comes to like IRAs and things. I hope no state authorities are listening to me because I don't want to give them the idea to make those sorts of adjustments. Um, so there's so many factors to look at and, you know, you got to kind of monitor it and go and keep track of the laws and that sort of thing and, and adapt too. So it's not a, it's not as straightforward as it might seem, or even as we might describe it. It's, it's a, you know, a bit of an art and a bit of a, and, and I think when you, you heart, have a hard time finalizing a, a strategy, I always remind people, hey, you know, let's minimize the maximum regret, which I stole that phrase from a client, but I loved it so much and it works so well in a description like this. Uh, a lot of times just avoiding what you would regret the most gives you enough comfort to say, you know, let's do something to make sure that doesn't happen. If that happens, everyone would be sad. You know, let's, let's negotiate, let's strategize around not that. Uh, that's another good way of looking at it too. Right. And I came up with the whole concept of 210 tax number because of CPAs and not in a negative sense, but we would counsel with clients and this happens regularly, even if we're not doing, not, not every client hires that firm to do their taxes. And we might have counseled with clients and recommended because the client has shared with us, oh, we want to, you know, leave a better inheritance to our children. So we're going to do a conversion or whatnot. And the issue becomes later on, the clients tell us, oh, our CPA said not to do. It's going to raise my taxes. And they're not looking. Well, that wasn't the aim. I was trying to lower the taxes for your children, which was what we were talking about at the meeting. And that's what you wanted to, to, to specialize, excuse me, not specialize, but to, to optimize and do. Well, the CPA didn't ask those kind of questions. Just, oh, God, no, you're going to raise your taxes now. So, and I'm not throwing CPAs under the bus. God, no, they're much smarter than I am on taxes. It's just that you have to, a uh, lot of uh, third party like tax people, like CPAs and whatnot, they're looking more at now, not the future. So just, I came up, it's, it's easy to understand, 210 tax ordering number. I believe in it. And I also, as I pointed out and Chris kind of concurred, you, you cannot reduce taxes for all three. You go crazy because you, you, you lower the taxes a little for the children, say, well, that's going to increase the taxes for the two of you. So you're like, oh, God, no, I got to push that back down. You push that tax liability back down. It's got to rise somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like you're trying to, those balloons there, the balloons that you can tie hot dogs out of, you know, those little long, thin balloons. Mm-hmm. You, you keep squeezing and moving those balloons and tying it and not trying to tax plan. That air's got to go somewhere. Those taxes got to go somewhere. Someone has to pay them. 210 is about just trying to, to prioritize the ordering. Anyways, enough on that. Uh, I know you got to go. I don't know if we have time for one more no, or, or not. Unfortunately, we're going to have to bring it to a close. Okay. Well, I will get to this one hopefully uh, next week on the next uh, episode of Retirement and IRA Show Q&A. 
think we had some good questions this week. It was mm-hmm. technically more questions than it seemed because this gentleman had two questions that were independent of each other, one on life insurance and the other on the 210 mm-hmm. text number. So hopefully people got some good information out of this. Everybody, please remember, we are not uh, in any type of relationship with you. We don't have a planning relationship with you. Everything we chat about on this show is educational in nature. And we're also sharing information that we believe is correct. We're not trying to sound biased towards any one strategy or anything. In other words, keep a very open mind. Use what we share on this show as education. Don't use it as planning for yourself and say, oh, my God, I heard Jim and Chris talk about this on the show. I'm going to run out and buy this thing that they were talking about, or I'm going to run out and do this strategy that they were talking about. Make sure it fits for you. Anyways, just wanted to share that with everybody. Sounds good. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back with you next week with the brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 